morning, everyone. You can say morning as well. I think that, that gentleman was about to say. Were you going to, about, about to say something to me? You're just going to morning. <laughs> He's just about to say hello to you, and you went to your computer. How are you all? Good. Did you sleep well? Good. Why don't you turn to somebody that you haven't yet said good morning to, so not the people you walked in with, and tell them what the highlight of Spring Harvest has been so far for you? One handy other way trick to get a free drink yet. Okay, well, I'm going to show you another one. I'm going to show you another pub trick while Malcolm does the notices. But first, I've got to get it set up. So what I need you to do is... Um, is that right? That would make more sense. Right, what I need you to do is, you know when you do like the sunglasses thing? Right, so I need you to do like the Batman mask. Right. And now the trick is, the trick is, what, what you do is, get, I, I don't quite know how you do that actually. No, you've got to go, like, make, make that, like that, and then go upside down and clamp it to your eyes. But not... Don't smack yourself in the mouth like I just did. That's it, right. So you got that. Now, once you've got the upside down mask, what you need to do is move only your index fingers. Oh, which is really difficult. Just move only your index fingers. No, they're your thumbs, sir. <laughs> yep. Brilliant. The only, the only way, is anyone here struggling? Is anyone only moving their thumbs? It's really hard. The only way you can do it, the only way, the only way you can do it is to wedge your thumbs into your eyes. And that means you can, but it's really freaky because you just want to move your thumbs all the time. So the idea is, not that we're encouraging heavy drinking, but if you're with someone and have had a couple of glasses of Cabernet Sauvignon, and then you get them to do that, all they'll do is just gouge their eyes out, and they'll get you a free drink. Anyway, notices. Thank you for that. I thought it would be... <laughs> I did that one. I couldn't do yesterday's at all, but I could do that one. So I'm really pleased I can do a pub trick, one in my whole life. Um, if you're able to, can I just invite you to stand for a minute? We'll pray, and then I'll do some announcements and things. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that uh, so quickly we sense a, a feeling of community amongst us in this tent. We've only been together for three hours, and yet um, you have created that bond between us. Thank you. Thank you for these people in this room and their amazing commitment to you and their willingness to sacrifice time to sit here with us. Thank you for the learning that we are doing together. Thank you that there aren't any experts in this room fellow travelers maybe, and some with different experiences to share. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for our life together. And we invite you today by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to us again and transform us and renew us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can sit down if you'd like to, or you can stay standing. I don't care. <laughs> um, you, are you tired? I thought you might be talking. How many of you were up until the wee small hours? Were you talking? Were you dancing? What were you doing? 
Uh, see, somebody at the front said kissing, and I thought we'll have a time of ministry and prayer. <laughs> you don't use words like kissing or sex in church. Goodness me. Uh, no, we're looking at the, uh, the guide from pages 50 to 71 uh, today. So if you, want, if you have the guide, you'll probably want to turn to that. If not, some of the stuff will be on the screen. So don't panic, Captain Manring, as they say. Um, we want to look today at what it means to be part of the church. What kind of community is the church? And how do we fit within it? Why is it important? How does it transform and change our lives? And we want to understand that our Christian approach to ethics and values and living springs out of community and is therefore distinctive. And hopefully by the time you leave today, we will have understood that somehow the story of the church is our story. And the story of the church is Jesus' story. And Jesus' story is the real story. And we've got to find our place um, in alignment and under who Jesus is. And we can only work that out with each other's support and help, basically. Now, we're going to take an hour to talk about that and work out what that means. But that's what we're trying to ascertain and work out with each other this morning. Um, day one, day two, session one. Can you remember what we talked about? Oh, you're all looking at the screen. Can you remember what we talked about without the screen? There. <laughs> we looked at the whole idea of God as Yahweh and what that means for us. That was on Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, Friday, Friday. What day is today? How many people are sure it's Sunday? <laughs> on Friday, we looked at the whole idea of Yahweh the I am who invites us into an understanding of himself in relationship. And that relationship means that we will daily get to know him better. Yesterday, what did we look at yesterday? Uh, yes, Carl highlighted churchianity, but it was all built around Jesus. And looking at the example of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and understanding that his ethic, his life, his values are the ones that shape us. They're the things that should override us in our own thinking and decision making um, and today we want to look at the whole question of the church here's what I want you to do turn to somebody I'm going to give you two minutes and uh, if your life could be a movie what movie title would it have and who would you have play your role if your life was a movie what would it be called and who would play you You need to go right down to God the mic. Finger. God finger. God finger. God finger. Like gold finger. Like gold. Oh, right. Yeah. And who would that. play you? Bernard Cribbins. <laughs> Bernard Cribbins. Right, okay. Anyone else got an answer or four? I heard something. You said that somebody would play. When Ray Winston would play you? That's because, yeah. Before no. I was a Christian 20 years ago, I was Dirty Harry. And Clint Eastwood would have had to have played me. What's the big I don't line think we want to Clint dig Eastwood. into what that too it? much. <laughs> Do you feel lucky, punk? Do you feel lucky? Make my day. Anyone else? No one. You must know what you'd like too your movie to be called. Too early, you want activist. <laughs> Anyone else? Oh, I've got one man here. So why's the other side? Run, you car. Are. You're supposed to be in training for oh, the no, marathon. I know, but I don't want to pull a calf muscle <laughs> just before the event. 
My title would be The Wind Beneath My Wings and I'd be Bette Midler. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Anyone else? No, they're not. Who do you think should play Carl in his movie? Brad Pitt. I'm liking that. I'm liking that. No. No ideas of who should play Carl? Shrek or something like that. Shrek. Postman, thank you. Postman Pat could play me. I don't have my Postman Pat glasses any longer. Rowan Atkinson could maybe play me. Because I've got that funny lack of a top lip. I don't know what my movie would called, be called. Um, I don't know. Something, there'd have to be something either green or Irish in it, I think. No, I know. Missionary to the Great Unwashed, because I live in England. <laughs> don't be offended. Goodness sake. Just remember who won the Triple Crown last year. And we'll talk about it for 50 years, because you have with the World Cups, so and why not? Um, I want to talk to you about the power of story. I want to help you to understand the power of story, the power of discovering who we are. Um, the, and it's in pages 54 to 55 in your guides. I put the page numbers up in the top corner so you can follow this stuff. Um, our own personal background shapes us. There's a whole debate, probably will be touched on tonight in the homosexuality debate in, um, at, in after hours. What, what shapes us, nature or nurture? And there's no doubt that nature shapes us. I look like my father and my mother. Funny how you can look like both at the same time, isn't it? Um, but I'm also shaped by nurture. So are you. You have a personal story about where you come from, um, why you think the way you think, and how you think the way you think. Some of our personal stories are not joyous ones. They're personal stories of tragedy and difficulty and hassle. And one of the things that we can do as Christians is allow our history to be more important than our future, which is actually not what God wants us to do. Um, but you probably, each of you, if you reflect, if I gave you a big sheet of paper that was long and narrow and asked you to recount the major issues in your life, the moments, whether they were before or after you became a Christian, where your life has changed, you'd all be able to do it. And there'd be some high points and there would be some low points. Um, although it's not, it's not something I talk about a lot publicly, I was uh, physically and sexually abused by my father until I was 12. He never called me by my first name until I was 17. My name was Stupid the Fifth. He would uh, leave open pills beside my bed every night. He tried to kill me. My earliest memory of him is of my two brothers holding him and him with a knife in his mouth trying to get in and get at me. He told me every day that he hated me, he told me every day that I was worthless, he told me every day that I was stupid. I was born and brought up in a simple and a very poor council estate in Northern Ireland and we didn't have very much and my other brothers and my sister weren't treated that way it was a real case of I was I was told constantly I was the mistake there were 10 years between me and the young the, the next one up and my siblings and I was the reason that life had gone wrong for my dad I was the reason that everything had fallen apart I was the reason he was an alcoholic I was the reason that there were money problems I was the everything was my fault and it's very easy when you're in that context to allow that kind of upbringing to shape who you are. Um, because not only are we shaped by what people say to us in our own families, we're also shaped by our culture. We're shaped by our society, our little community. The place where I lived was a place called Rathcool. 
Um, at the time of building, it was the biggest housing estate in Europe. It was built because of the Blitz in, in Belfast in 1941 um, to enable people to get into half-decent housing outside of the city centre. A Friday night, my mates, the, the idea of a, of a really good night out on a Friday night was uh, going and stoning Catholics and fighting with the police. My, one of my best friends, when he was 11, three days after the Bobby Sands incident, I don't know if you remember Bobby Sands, the hunger striker, he died in 1981, three days after um, he died. My friend, whose dad was a milk float driver, was helping his dad deliver milk, and he was, they were ambushed, and he was uh, tarred and feathered and murdered. So we're shaped by our community, not just our own personal upbringing. But if we allow our own community and lives to be the only thing that shapes us, we can end up in a very different place from where we could if we allow something else to shape us. We're shaped by our Britishness. You're shaped by your Scottishness or your Irishness. You're shaped by your culture, the language that you use, the clothes that you wear, the acceptable norms, stuff that... Carl, you were talking yesterday about tobacco. Was it yesterday or the day before? Yesterday, was, Carl was talking about <laughs> Carl was talking about tobacco yesterday, and uh, I remember at one point in I lived in Scotland for a while, and I was preaching in a place called Carrubbers Christian Centre. Anybody heard of that? It was founded by D. L. Moody, and I was doing some lecturing there. And when I went in, uh, they were sitting um, condemning the idea that um, people Christians could could smoke at all. And the missioner to Carrubbers Christian Centre. Uh, it was a guy called Brian, and he'd been a missionary in Belgium for many, many years. And he said, I remember going into a, a meeting in Belgium where the room was thick with smoke, and they were condemning British Christians for drinking tea. Because it was a different culture. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and buy 20 Benson and Hedges and knock into them. That's not my decision, nor is it yours. Your body's a temple. Do what you think you should do to honor it. Um, but the culture that we're part of shapes us. The culture that we're part of in church shapes us. The culture that we live in shapes us. Whether we like it or not, our political views are, are more often shaped by our parents than they are by our own decisions. 95% of people in the United Kingdom go to a church, not because they've chosen it, but because their parents went. Very few people actually decide physically, positively, and with a really kind of forward-looking attitude, I want to be an Anglican, or I want to be a Methodist, or I want to be X, Y, or Z. They're in the denominations that they're in because somebody in their family was. Now, not all of us will be in that case, but many people are. So we're shaped by all of those kinds of stories. And I, I guess the question we need to ask ourselves this morning as we ver wrestle with the whole idea of virtue ethics is what other stories can shape us? What other stuff can shape who we are and how we believe? One of the big challenges and one of the big, big, big dangers of the conversation that we're having this week is if you take the idea of virtue ethics and you dismantle it or disconnect it from a strong, solid center, then you create something which is nothing more than relativism. And we need to avoid that. What do I mean by that? Some of you are looking at me and saying, what, what do you mean? Well, if, if the central point of your life is fluid and movable, then as the society that you're part of moves, that central point will move with it. If the central point of your life, the thing that shapes your values is immovable, then your perception and expression of those values may change, but the values themselves won't. Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews as an anchor. Anchors don't move. The name Yahweh 
means I am who I am. And throughout the Old Testament, there are many things that we understand about God and his nature. One of them is, I change not. I am the Lord. I change not. So I have a friend who is a uh, translator for Wycliffe, the Bible translators, and he was helping translate the New Testament for um, an inner African community. And they've never seen an anchor because they've never seen sea. If you were translating the idea of an anchor to a community that had never seen sea, but was rural and used farm animals and uh, donkeys and chickens and all that, how would you translate it? What did you somebody say? Tether. Gatepost. Rock. Whale. Yeah. Stake. That's exactly, if you take uh, tether, gatepost, and stake, that's exactly how he translated anchor. He said, Jesus is the donkey post around which you tie your rope. Does that make sense? An immovable object that gives you freedom to move, but you never depart from the center. We either have a view from nowhere, which is relativism. As society changes, we just change our view. Or we have a view from somewhere. The question we have to decide is where is our somewhere? Does that make sense? What's the immovable in us? How do we do that? C.S. Lewis said, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what kind of a person you are. Really challenging page of notes in your um, learning guide on page 55 and 56, which suggests the possibility that there is no such thing as one absolute set of ethics. That lots of different cultures change their views. Some cultures um, celebrate and think it's okay for women to be burned on the pyres of their husbands, despite the fact that their husbands are dead and they're alive. Others would see that as abhorrent. Some, would, some cultures believe that, um, that it, it's, it's right to subject uh, women or children to um, less than equal behavior. Others don't. Um, some think that it is okay, culturally, to cut the hands off a thief or to stone an adulterer to death. Others don't. So sometimes we can say, well, there is a, a sense of moral absolutes that are existing across the world. Page 55 and 56 of your notes suggest that that's not possible. Now, you can make your own mind up about that. But the challenge for us is this. If we live adrift in the ocean of life, how do we set our seal? Because if you're told that there are no moral absolutes, how do you set your seal? Where's your anchor? And that can be quite a dangerous place to be. Because if you think, well, well my anchor is just where I want it to be, you can be in real trouble. Because your moral viewpoint and your ethics might change depending on the company that you keep or the situation that you face or not wanting to offend somebody. We need more than that. That's not distinctively Christian. It's not going to guide us through trouble and difficulty and hassle. If we cut ourselves free from some set of values that we hold on to that are, that are constant, we'll end up just being relative and we'll lose our distinctive identity. So we've got to work out how to do that without at the same time claiming that we are better people than everyone else because the Bible makes it very clear that we're not better people than anyone else. So how do we do that? Where does it leave us? What are the questions that we've got to face? It can be quite scary. We can be dangerously close to losing our moorings if we don't think about this. But here's the thing. If we make the assertion, remember the idea of story. If we make the assertion, if we suggest that our lives are a story that we must find a meaning in, 
And we find our meaning in the story of Jesus. And Jesus' story, and this is the big thing, Jesus' story is the real story. Then we've just created, if you like, an absolute framework To people who do not understand or see Christ as Lord, that's offensive. Because they'll say, why should your moral framework be more important than my moral framework? Why should your story be more important than my story? If you believe in the uniqueness of Jesus, however, that is what you're saying. And that will cause offense. And people will not applaud it we must be careful to remember the exclusiveness of Jesus. He is not an option amongst many. He's not a way to God, according to our New Testament story. He is the way to God. He's not an expression of God. He is the full and complete revelation of God to us, according to Paul and Colossians. It's quite a big thing to say the story of the whole world and its purpose is found in Jesus. That's why he shapes our moral framework, don't you think? But that's what we claim. Let me put it this way in terms of scripture for you, because this is the challenge. Um, There is no other name given amongst men under heaven uh, by which you can be saved, Peter said in the book of Acts. Take that as a statement. Add it to Paul's injunction in Philippians that says, let your mind and attitude be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So, His big story, Peter, shapes our life and attitudes, Paul. That will equal the promise of persecution in Matthew. And that's the rub in virtue ethics for a Christian. You're not free to make up your own ideas of virtues and values. The virtues and values that we hold spring from the story, life, and example of Jesus. Nowhere else. Now, no wonder you're quiet, because actually, that's probably the most important thing I've said all week. And you won't get applauded for that. You won't be told that your virtues are relevant and credible. Somebody will say to you, I'm offended by that. And at that point, we say, well, we are sorry that you are offended. We didn't set out to offend you, but our virtues are shaped by Jesus. Our ethics are shaped by our belief that he is the second person of the Trinity and we will not apologize for him. That can be challenging, except that you are promised that you have the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. Um, on, uh, in your notes on page 60, there's something explained called tacit knowledge. It's what Card was talking about yesterday. With his, I was amazed that he's a jazz pianist. And then he put some jazz on and I thought it was him, but it was Jamie Cullum. But I bet he could play as well as that. I play saxophone, so we've decided, and clarinet, so we've decided that we're going to have something of a jamming session at some point, um, which I really love. I would say something witty fact, but my microphone's off. It, there you are. Thanks, you thank you, but I've lost the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, tacit knowledge, there are two different kinds of knowledge. There's knowledge that you have to learn and that you have to process all the time, and then there's tacit knowledge. Tacit knowledge, explained brilliantly in page 60 of your notes, is what Carl was talking about yesterday. When you've learned music, when you've spent day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year learning scales and arpeggio, ar- ar- arpeggios, 
when you've learned scales and everything else, <laughs> arpeggios, and uh, you've learned how to play, um, when you are then able, confronted with a piece of music, you can play it or you can improvise. But when, you know, when Bach or Beethoven or Mozart learned to play, I'm sure they found it boring. But then when they got to enjoy the music, they weren't constrained by their obedience, they were released by it. Tacit knowledge is the ability to walk with Jesus day by day and it becomes a releasing thing, although it can feel like a discipline. Discipline isn't bad. Obedience isn't bad. Repentance isn't bad. Doing as we are told isn't bad. It recreates in us the ability to be truly human. But it hurts and it's difficult and it means making hard choices and it means having to be disciplined and constrain yourself and not do just what you want and not just think I can make the decision and nobody else matters. That's why tacit knowledge is important. For us, that is also accompanied by spirit indwelling, which isn't covered in your notes. It's not just that we learn a law. It's that a law lives in us. It's not just that we learn how to be like Jesus. It's that God lives in us. So as we learn, this living in us, God, connects what we are learning with who he is, and we are able to obey. Now, don't let that excite you, but I think that's pretty good news. That's why I'm I enjoy being charismatic in my spirituality. The spirit in me enables me to, to learn and be what God has called me to be. Does that make sense? So therefore, you're never alone in your moral choices. You're never alone in your virtuous choices. You're not an anchor floating around in the sea. You're bedded. The chain that connects you to God is God himself. The spirit is the chain that connects you to the father. The son is your anchor. So you are safe in that, although at times it'll feel tight and difficult and hard and it still demands obedience. I cannot be who I am without you being who you are, however. And that's where community comes in, which is what we're looking at today. I, I am not free to discern and decide what Jesus is and means without the support and guidance and input of my brothers and sisters in the church. I need you. I need you to help me understand this. I need you to shape me. I need you to challenge my errant behavior. I need you to remind me. There's a lady that spoke to me yesterday and she said, you know, I've spoken to you a couple of times and we've disagreed. She said, I'm sorry. She doesn't need to be sorry. She may have been right and I may have been wrong. She is shaping me into being like Jesus. We need each other. That's why I love being in the activist zone. I like us to fight. I like you to disagree with me. I like you to tell me why I'm wrong so that you can realize that you just need to listen more closely. We need each other in the church. The church is supposed to be a support mechanism that helps us, challenges us, shapes us, and changes us. I hate homogenous church. I hate church where everybody is white, everybody is middle class, everybody likes the same songs and responds the same way in sung worship, and everybody has the same. I can't stand it. I love the fact that the people in my church sing songs that I hate, and I have to go through it. And in the middle of hating them, I realize actually it's me that's being changed by this. I'm not right all the time. I need the church to help me to be more like Jesus because I'm not strong enough to do it on my own. I'm not able to do it on my own. Carl. Cool. Let's just take a moment to think on that while I get myself organized. Um, 
just to underline what Malcolm's been saying, this is not a solo journey, is it? Walking as a Christian is not an individualistic thing, but we live in a very individualistic society. So here is a classic example of today's hero as seen by Hollywood. In the Peak District, but that's, that's fatal, that kind of image, because what it says to us, you know, Tom Cruise there with his steely-eyed expression in the shape of the cross, which is very interesting, because that producer always has an image of the cross in all of his films, the director rather. But that image, it says to us, I can do it all by myself. And even though I've got a team of people, I actually, I'm the super guy. You know, I've got all the knowledge, I've got all the expertise, I've got all the physical ability, I don't need anybody else. And that's rampant individualism. And I think that's quite rampant in the church. It's quite rampant amongst Christians. It's certainly rampant in society, but it's highly, highly dangerous. Now, some of you here, or many of you here, as activists, are by nature quite pioneering people. So you're people with ideas, and you're people who want to crash in and do stuff, and you've got the ability to make it happen. Now, that can be absolutely fantastic, but it can also be very, very dangerous. For me as a pioneer, and I've planted churches and set up ministries, and I've had your business along the way, some of which have failed spectacularly and some did moderately well, <laughs> in a minor way. I paid myself for university by setting up student balls and stuff like that. Some of them are just catastrophic, particularly the Valentine's ball, which is a nightmare. But because I've got the ability to do that, I can kid myself and say, yeah, it's easier for me if I don't use people or, better still, not use people, but walk in community with people who have got different opinions to me. Because if I do it myself, I don't get opposition. If I do it myself, no one's going to wind me up or agitate me. <laughs> I'm not going to get any hassles. No one's going to obstruct me. No one's going to question me. No one's going to look better than me. I can be the hero and there will be no challenge and no, no. And that's quite dangerous, isn't it? I mean, in my marriage, one of the things that fascinates me about Karen is that she's completely secure and, and you know, I keep telling people how to live and she actually gets on and does it, which is just <laughs> a brilliant combination but she's deeply unimpressed by apparent success and stuff like that. So I could come in and say, I had this brilliant preach, 800 people and 16,000 people turned up and got saved. And she'd say, that's brilliant. Can you put the rubbish out, please? You know, and just kind of, you know, keep me on my feet. But what she'll do is she'll listen to comment and conversation and I can come in and feel really round up that people are not agreeing with me. And she'll sit there and she'll say, well, actually, you know, I think they're right on that kind of thing. I think they had a point in saying that. And that's about walking in community, isn't it? Yeah. Problem is, community can be painful, which is what I want to explore a little bit. So I'm going to want you to watch this little clip of a couple of Christians 
trying to be Christians together and sharing their faith. And, and I want you to feel excruciatingly in pain as we watch it. And, and I want you to be thinking about the most painful experience you've had in Christian community and the best experiences you've had in Christian community. And at the end of the video, I want you to just discuss that for a couple of minutes and share those bruising moments. So here we have a clip from The Fast Show. Anybody want to give some feedback, share some stuff they're talking about? Most you want me to run? Yeah. Anyone want to share? I mean, you might not want to share your most bruising, painful encounter openly, but there might be some thoughts. Uh, we're, we're Methodists, and we used to go to something called Easter people. And uh, uh, when we were quite new Christians, and we came back from Easter people absolutely on fire and uh, wanting everyone to come and see what we'd seen and heard. And uh, we did a presentation at the church, and it went... A flop, <laughs> totally unwanted and uh, rejected by most of the congregation. And that was a, a sad moment. Thank you for being honest about that. It's not easy to share stuff like that. So the high and the low, sorry, the, the high was probably happened here. Um, well, I, I came, to, I've been in church since like 18 months old, so I sort of came to Christ by osmosis, but always accepted Christ as, well, it's part of my life, but I'm not too sure, but there's doubts, but I'm not too sure. I came here in 94, and I just wanted to give my life to Christ and say, I don't want any doubts anymore, I just want Jesus in my life. And it was a really moving experience, and I, got yeah. so, you know, I just felt on top of the world. It was brilliant. Mm. 95 I came, I think it was probably the same year that you were here, right. when people were falling down right. and being yeah, prayed yeah. for. I went forward for prayer. I fell down. But everyone else was saying, what a wonderful experience it was. God was in their life. It was so brilliant. I just felt empty, and I didn't know why. But it took me a long time to come to the realization that I was looking for the high. And that's what I think it was all about, this sort of empty and aching. I, I needed to focus my life on what Jesus was in me and what my faith can do for me, rather than looking for those experiences and the highs. So well, that's all that. Good and, good and bad. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I'll, I'll come back to you. I'll come around this way. Um, my bad one was, there was a period in the 90s where I was struggling a bit in my faith and life was a bit tricky. But um, I was quite involved with a student ministry which got hooked into some quite conservative evangelical sort of things. And I continually felt it was a list of you should, you ought, you must type stuff rather than someone just saying... You're doing all right, mate. Keep going, you know, hang in there. And um, that was really quite a tough time. Um, and the flip side, on the good side, was uh, when our little girl was poorly a couple of years ago, just seeing the church family mobilise around us and love us and put themselves out and sort of really go the extra mile and some. It was great. So. Thank you. I'll just come to that gentleman, Carl, and then hand back to you. My bad one was... Uh, 20 years ago, just after I got converted, when the lady who led me to the Lord let me down and broke her confidence when I shared something very personal with her. 
and it took me 19 years to forgive her completely. But my highlight was this year when I came to full salvation. Amen. Thank you so much. My, um, my most painful uh, times in my life have been in leading church or being part of a church community, if I'm being totally frank. In fact, one of the most painful moments um, in relationship with people was turning up to a, an evening communion meeting once uh, when I was leading a team of pastors and uh, this guy that I'd raised up into ministry failed to turn up and he was meant to be taking part in a meeting and one of my colleagues came over to me and he said well he's been grossly offended by you and he's not going to be coming so I, the meeting started about five minutes later I thought I don't have a clue what they were talking about you know I mean I know I can have a bit of an off humour sometimes but it's not that bad surely you know but you sort of struggle through the meeting but inside you feel tense you know and churned up and people can make the mistake can't you particularly if you're an activist type of personality that you're quite strong and you don't have emotions like other people. That can happen, can't it? Some of you will recognise that. But inside you're churned up. And then after the meeting, a couple of my elders came over to me and said, we've convened a meeting for tomorrow, you know, Monday, 2 o'clock, and you need to get to this guy's house, someone else's house, and there'll be this, we're going to have all the issues out in the open. I didn't have a clue what was going on. Turned up to this meeting, and um, I was the last one to arrive, and... All the elders were sitting in this living room with this guy who had also this big issue. I mean, you start to imagine things. You think, what have the Daily Mail found out? You know, what have I done? <laughs> you know, and I walked in and, and the only seat that was left was this really tiny little stall. <laughs> so they're all sitting on these big chairs, you know, and there's me, apparently the senior pastor. You know, we're never matching to hierarchy in our church, obviously. So I'm sitting on this little tiny stall. And with everyone looking at me, as I'd walked out of my front door, Karen had given me a kiss goodbye. And she said, do you know that song with Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm? And I said, no, thankfully. And she said, well, it goes like this, with Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. Or something like that. Anyway, thank you. With Jesus in the vessel, you can. Yeah, right. it was like that. And, and I'm sitting there, and all the way through this meeting, I'm under my breath and going, Jesus, that's all you can say. And this guy, my, my friend, my brother, you know, produced this clipboard of, um, he previously worked in a corporate environment, and I think they used to have their meetings like this, you know. So this clipboard of, of 10 reasons why I, I should effectively be removed from post, you know. And and I'm listening to them. I'm going, Jesus, in the rest, you're going to smile at the flaming storm, you know. <laughs> it's like, come on, man. And then on the fifth point, uh, it was so ridiculous. One of the elders said, I've just had about enough of this. You know, this this is ridiculous. Where have you got all this stuff from? Anyway, it turned out that a couple of people in the church who had been, you know, really resisting the changes that we were trying to bring in had been just feeding this guy and feeding this guy, you know. So anyway, we stood up and he looked at me and he said, oh, I think I need to fall on my sword. And I said, it's not the seven samurai, mate. We're a Baptist church, you know. <laughs> Give us a hug. So we sort of had this hug. But I walked out of there and I just felt bruised, you know. I just felt exposed and 
And then I went home to Karen. And I said what had happened. And she said, well, I think there's some good points in there you can really learn from. <laughs> For crying out loud. You were the smiling the storm person a minute ago, you know. But I went through this process for about a week, two weeks of listening back to some of the stuff. And I found myself through these sorts, and, and that's not the only time I've been in meetings like that. Now, I've had a, f- I've had a few of those. I know you find it hard to believe because I'm such a pleasant, affable person. But I've had a few of those meetings. And they're, and they're painful. But, I mean, I've been a bit of a rough diamond. You know, I'm, I'm a, I can be a bit of an edgy personality. I can have a temper. You know, God's gradually over the last millennia <laughs> been been fashioning the temper into passion and for issues and for justice to see the kingdom come. But I've, you know, I'm I've I've been an edgy personality, and and God has put me through storms to smooth me, you know, and to shape me. By nature, I'm I'm a pioneer, but an introvert actually. I'm. You may think because I might be cracking jokes and standing facing you that I'm a I'm a performer, but I'm not. I'm actually quite shy. My instinctive reaction in a party is to hide. Oh, I want to be the bloke in the corner. You know, I'm trying to socialise with. So I've not been to Spring Ice so long. I'm, I'm trying to socialise with some people. Here. I have to take a deep breath. Before I go into a room where there's people quaffing wine and eating snacks. So I think, what do I say? You know, what, what am I going to talk about? I, I have to concentrate and think about those things. I'm quite shy. So by nature, I don't want to be walking in community. I, I want to be doing my own thing. But I've learned that community is just hugely important. But it's bruising. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So what I want to do is just talk through a, a few things here, just a few uh, things that I've picked up along the way about this. Number one, you have to have an attitude if you're living in community where you're prepared to be bruised. Now, someone once said we're like porcupines, you know, on an Arctic, you know, on, a, on an iceberg. You know, and they'll all huddle together for the warmth. And as soon as you get too close, you prick each other and you spring apart again. And I think that's that's probably very true. We do need each other. But as we draw close, you know, there there are frictions. We we're different, aren't we? And we've all got opinions and but that's part of living together. You know, you read the passages in Acts and we can glorify them a little bit. All the believers devoted themselves to apostle teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals and to prayer. Uh, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day and met in homes, shared their meals with great joy and generosity. Yeah, Acts 4, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. That's just a few lines. I reckon in between those lines there was a bit of argy-bargy, don't you? Yeah, and we know that. We know that as church develops, you know from the letters of Corinthians and so on, that it got a bit edgy. You know, and there was conflict that had to be resolved. I think that's part of living with people and being with people. Number two, I do let my life be spoken into. And not by people who will agree with me. And, and I, I try and find people who have gone before me, who know more than me, who are prepared to be brutally frank and honest. 
Now, I meet with a group of guys for prayer only every couple of months, but they're, they're sort of leading ministries and stuff. And they'll be really honest with me. You know, and, and, and sometimes they've said things to me that have been quite painful. Well, one guy I really respect came over to me and said, you know, I've been watching you for a couple of months and there's a lot of you in what you do. You know, that there's not enough Jesus in what you're doing. That hurts, doesn't it? You think, what do you know? <laughs> you know, <laughs> smile at this storm, pal. <laughs> but you need, you need that. I practice vulnerability. Now, I'm not ministering to you out of my successes. I'm sharing stories here of vulnerability and where I've failed, and where I've got things wrong. You know, I think that's, that's a healthy way forward. So I let my guard down. You know, I'm prepared to be vulnerable, even though I've been hurt. And here's the thing. I think, I think we have an enemy set against us. I believe that from Scripture. I believe that from experience. And I believe that what the enemy would want to take from us is trust, giving the benefit of the doubt, believing the best, and living a vulnerable life. And he does that by hurting us, by making us hurt each other. So he retrenched back and stopped trusting and believing the best and being vulnerable. I think... If the enemy does that to you, he captures your heart and ministry and life, really. I think living in community with people who are different to you really helps you, if you can suffer the pain that often comes, to stay quite whole as a person. Number four, I lose arguments. I don't, I, I lose ones I don't think of as important. But I am prepared to lose arguments. Sometimes I'm sitting with my team and I know I can force something through. Now, if I think it's absolutely essential, I will force something through, but I'm prepared to lose arguments. And I think that's quite healthy. I keep loving people. And I pray often that I'll keep loving people. And I go and see people that I know don't like me. I mean, I remember once getting a letter when I was being voted on to be senior pastor of the church, there was a letter marked private and confidential being put in every elder's pigeonhole in the church, including mine. And I made the mistake of opening it <laughs> 10 minutes before the evening meeting. And it was Christian hate mail, which gave a whole load of reasons why I should not be senior pastor. And it was quite, it was quite a personal, horrific letter. And, uh, and when the guy, the couple, walked in, for the communion service I was about to lead. I thought, I don't believe this. I've actually got a sermon in front of me prepared on love. And now this couple's walked in that I want to fire an Exocet missile at, you know. So I was saying to God, what do, you, what do I do here? How do I handle this? So I walked over to them, and I looked them in the eye, which is quite hard, isn't it, when you're in conflict scenarios to make eye contact. And I, I walked over, and I put my arms around this guy. Let's call him Dave. I put my arms around Dave. Sorry, Dave. So I put my arms around Dave, and I said, I just want to say thank you for writing to the eldership. Uh, thank you for the courage of sharing your heart. You know, And I want you to know that even though it's quite difficult to read, I really love you. You know, thanks, bro. And he went, oh, I thought I felt released, you know, because I wasn't saying it to, like, pour heaps of coal, burning coal of shame 
on him. I, I needed to do that for me, didn't it? Keep loving people. Finally, I mentor, but I'm mentored. And I surround myself again with strong people who can speak into different areas of my life. You know, structural leadership stuff, my spiritual walk with Jesus. People will look me in the eye and say, what have you been looking at? You know, what have you... How's your inner integrity? You know, how's your prayer life? How are you, you reading your Bible? How are you treating your wife? You know, and there's a group of us that get together with our wives and our last of wives. We've heard from Carl how he's doing in his marriage. Can you tell us, please, Karen, how things are going? That's a nightmare. <laughs> but that's good, isn't it? Because he makes sure I behave all year. The threat and the pressure. So those are some tips. I, I, I feel like... Walking community can be tough, but such a blessing if you persist through it. Let's show you a little bit of video because I think this to me captures the heartbeat of where people are at. I think there's a crying need for love and community and closeness out there. And I think this this little bit of video says it all. And I'm going to read you a quote and hand over to Malcolm. Um, we're running out of time, but I want us to do something because this whole idea of community is very important. Um, Next one, Carl, actually. Um, I'd love us to have, we've got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to try to, just under 10 minutes, have a very quick debate. And here's the motion. The motion is this house believes that it is more than possible to be a churchless Christian. Now that might sound to you like it's a kind of facile debate. It's actually a very live debate that's happening. So um, we need somebody, to, somebody, that, somebody that says, yeah, I do believe that. And you're, you're brave enough to say, in fact, yeah, you're brave enough to say, I believe that. I think it's more than possible to have a churchless faith. And somebody say, no, I don't. Two volunteers. Which one? Come here then, please, quickly. Thank you so much. Which one are you doing? I can't hear you. I'm sorry, I'm deaf. It is possible to be a churchless Christian. So you go on that side. And we somebody says it is not possible to be a churchless Christian. So, uh, okay, come to this side. Thank you. you. Are you going to come here? Oh, you don't want to come here. Okay. I need somebody to come here to, def- to say they disagree with this. Come on then. Thank you. Nice and quickly. Okay. Um, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Which side are you taking? I'm going to take the side of we can be churchless. Okay, I'll take the side of we can't. So I, uh, do you want to propose, do you want to follow me or do you, or do you want to start? Um, maybe I'll start because I wouldn't be able to. So you've only got about two minutes. You've got about two minutes. Oh, well, I'll, be, sh- I'll, be, I'll be shorter than that. But what I, I, at first I thought, well, it is possible to be a churchless Christian. What about like hermits and people living on top of pillars and things? But I suppose even they're trying to give people an example or, um, so you've got two you keep going. Oh, yeah. sorry. Um, so even if you're somewhere removed from the world, you're still part of it. Oh yes. <laughs> um, and I guess there's something of being Christian of being of the world, but not, no, in the world, but not of it. But, um, and the other thing is the Bible says that you know, when two or three people are together, you can't have a church of one, um, Unless, I mean, and even if you, and even if you are a church, when you have to pray for other people, and um, I think that's all I'd want to say. Okay. Why do you think you can be? You can't. You, why do you? Um, why do you think you can be a churchless Christian? 
I just want to think about um, people like maybe Adam and Eve, the first people on this earth. Did they have a church? Um, those that are missionaries in the middle of nowhere, do they have a church? And for me, I think that, and you don't have to share this opinion, but I just think that it's the people themselves. I mean, think about home groups that meet in people's houses and how perhaps people that can't make it to church can, can actually um, worship God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And pe people are moved. They go for long walks and they're moved in ways that you can never imagine. Are they in a church? And I just think... Christianity is not about being in a church, in a man-made building. Just Jesus, when he first preached out to all those amazing people, he wasn't in a church. He was in the open. And, and I do agree, actually, with a bit about with two more, more people. That is in the Bible, isn't it? That when you come together, when you pray with two or more people, there is something under time pressure here. But I, I just feel so much that... Being a Christian is not about always being in those buildings. And it, ah, it's we're not talking about the buildings, we're talking about the community. Yes, oh, okay, so if you're a single person, and I, I think also that those that are lonely, that are on their own, doesn't mean that they're not a Christian. And I think that's really important. There are some that are just, you know, perhaps abandoned. I, I know where time's up, but yeah. I think that's... Look, you've got to stay there in case you need to um, have any comments. Feedback, what do you think? Nice, quick comments, because we want this to be a bit sparky. Okay, even Jesus surrounded himself with other people to help him through his walk. So you think you can't be a churchless Christian? No, you can't. Okay. I've tried being a churchless Christian and found it really difficult. Didn't work? Why did it not work? I needed the support of other Christians. Thank you. We're commanded to love one another as he loved us, so you can't do that in isolation. Okay. Anybody think, no, this is nonsense. You can be on your car. Why can you be churchless? Well, I think the whole notion of saying, I go to church... It's deeply flawed. I mean, aren't you being church every day? What's this going to church thing on a Sunday? Why are you confining it to a box? So I think the whole thing's filled with inherent danger, Malcolm. Yeah, I was going to say the whole thing kind of hinges on our definition of church. We've already touched on whether it's a building, which we've, I think we've established it probably isn't a building, but it's whether it's a group of people doing what we think church is or, or whether there's new definitions of what a church could be. But I guess I would define church as a group of people that are trying to follow Jesus together. Right, so you're not saying it's about sitting in rows, singing bad music? That kind no, of no. Okay. Can you be a Christian without communities, the question? I don't think you can. It's like coals in a fire, isn't it? And when you keep the coals together, they burn brightly. You take one away, and soon it loses that heat. doesn't Put happen with the Holy Spirit, though, does it? It glows again. Oh, Holy yeah, Spirit's the Holy like Spirit's in you. How can you lose the heat of the Holy Spirit in yeah. you? He's, he's saying... Hold, okay, you've had a chance. I'll come so back to you in a second. To to Somebody who hasn't said anything. Sorry. <laughs> Somebody who hasn't said anything, please. I'm not saying I believe this, but I'm just being naughty. Yeah, well, you've got to be naughty. Be yeah, provocative. Um, I think that um, even people who are by themselves, hermits and people in the middle of nowhere, so-called, they're in communion with all the almighty in creation. So that is also in community. Community isn't only people. I think it's too, church is too people-centred. should be God-centred and then the rest of the universe. Anybody disagree with that? I disagree with you, not just for the sake of argument. Okay, no, I, I disagree with you because I think that to be in community is not simply to be in community with God. It's to be in community with each other. Church has to involve another human being, surely. Exactly, it's vertical. Shout. Who do you share your encouragements with? Who do you share your blessings with? Who do you get to pray for you if you live, if you live your Christian life on your own? Doesn't the Bible say that I've been given everything I need for lead a godly, strong life with Jesus? 
Doesn't the Bible say, forsake not the gathering together of yourselves as the manner of some is? Yeah, but, me but and you're the dog. never alone because Jesus is always with you. So, but, but Jesus has promised that we are to gather together. He tells us that we need each other. He tells us that we're changed together. You, did you not listen to Carl and all that he said about being changed in community? The other side, of, yes, I agree that we, we, we have people all around us, but your, your belief is within you. So it is possible to sometimes be on your own and feel. Ah, but that's Bec not what we're talking about. We're not talking about occasionally being on your own. We're talking about occasionally being on your own and also needing the community of other people who can challenge you and change you. One last comment and then we're going to vote. I came to faith two years ago at Spring Harvest and the church was a local church, was always their church. When I came to faith and suddenly I was part of it, I was just like I've come alive. So, here's the question. It's a quarter past. Um, it's not, this isn't an artificial question, by the way, although we've taken views that are help. Give them a round of applause, first of all. Thank you. It's not an artificial question, although we're artificially stoking the fires a little bit. For the first generation in history, we're part of a generation where there, are, there may well be more people who don't go to church, but still call themselves practicing followers of Jesus, than there are that do. I have loads of friends who are followers of Jesus but don't go to church. And are not, I don't mean go in the sense of go to a building, to answer your question. I mean don't live in community with other believers. Don't, don't do that. They just don't do it because they either find it too painful or they don't like it. I love them and they're some of my best friends and I disagree with them. I think it's a deeply, deeply, deeply dangerous position to be in where you think that you can go away on your own and work out who God is and you don't need anybody else but I might be wrong. So the question is, this house believes church, when we say churchless, we don't mean buildingless. We mean communityless, solitary, alone, on your own. This house believes that it is more than possible to be a solitary Christian. All those in favor? One, two, three, four. Four in favor. All those against? Those that are abstaining, thank you. I think it's a question that you need to leave deliberately open because it's not cut and dried. It's not straightforward and it's a pastoral issue as well as a theological one. See you tomorrow.